welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about media politics and the politics of the media. I am Tom Mills and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Dan Hind. We're going to do a couple of things today. We're going to be discussing BBC Radio 4's The Moral Maze and the reason being that The Moral Maze has done a programme on the moral purpose of the BBC and I saw this on Twitter where I get all my ideas and thought it might be interesting for us to discuss how they approach the issue but also just try to get to grips with the nature of this program itself because it's it's definitely like a thing it's something of an institution in um british broadcasting and yeah we thought it'd be it was my idea uh dan agreed to it so here we are um and i apologize <laughs> for subjecting him i think to having to <laughs> listen to what is probably not your favorite um yeah. audio experience but there you uh, go. It did us lots of good. We're, so we'll get on to that. But before we come to our hot takes on that recent programme, we wanted to just spend a little bit of time talking about the, the Labour, Labour leadership election. So we're recording on Monday, the 24th of February. Ballots have gone out. It's been a long process. We know who the candidates are and we thought it might be useful for us to spend a little bit of time talking about their policy positions on the media in particular and also reflecting on the choice that members have. I mean, I think many listeners will be members of the Labour Party and it might be useful for us to sort of broach some of those issues and think about where the agenda which we've sort of talked around and developed on the podcast might fit into how people are making decisions on the Labour leadership election. We've, we spoke about this, I think, already on the podcast, but there was an interesting... Have we spoke about Rebecca Long-Bailey's proposals on the BBC in the previous episode? I think we did, didn't we? Yeah, yeah we, we did. did. Yeah, we spoke about it in the introduction, I think, to the second uh, half of our interview. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah. that would have been the last episode. So we've, we've yeah. covered that. Um, and that, I think, was a very interesting, a very interesting set of proposals that uh, don't, don't seem to have been received much pickup but I think was was very positive um the other interesting sort of development was that Lisa Nandy has made a series of broadly similar sort of um proposals around the BBC around the need to open up its governance to license fee payers about some of the the problems around the BBC um which I have to say I I thought was quite an interesting development. What, what did you make of it, Dan? It was it was a, an article at, at um, uh, what is it, Labour List, wasn't it, where where this was? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think that the you know the general tenor of the these these proposals is uh, is you know to be welcomed. Um, it's broadly um, uh, in line with the sorts of things that we've been talking about. Um, I think that the specific proposals you made about putting a levy on social media companies and using that to fund independent journalism. I'm th- I think that's sort of been perhaps influenced by the media reform coalition's work. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's welcome. I mean, I think everything is quite vague. Um, yeah, absolutely. In, in it, yeah. It's like, well, ha- what do you mean by independent media? How will that money be um dispersed and so on and again we'll talk about this in the context of our discussion about moral maze you know there's a lot of chat about oh making say make you know mutualization or making making the the bbc more accountable and so on yeah Uh, the devil really is in the details there's no getting away away from the fact that you know you have to ask what sorts of 
as it were, constitutional mechanisms will be put in place if you re, you know if you if you're serious about empowering the membership um, and not just giving them a sort of homeopathic amount of voting power in an annual election that no one in their right minds would pay any attention to. Um, you you know you do have to sort of think in quite close grain detail about what you know what institution building looks like. And again, this is you know this is something that the left has not really had an opportunity to do very much. Um, uh, but is nevertheless, I think, increasingly pressing. You know, we, we are facing um, a, gr- a growing kind of institutional collapse across the yeah. state and its sort of um, its peripheral apparatus, its ideological apparatus, as Alfie say would say. Um, so, I mean, but again, I think it's worth sort of noting, you know, the distance that we've travelled since the general election campaign on media policy. Yeah, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, it, I mean, it's kind of... It's strange, this article. Oh, but people want to read it, by the way. Um, yeah, it's labelless. It's called I Will Defend the Free Media. Here's how the BBC should be reformed. I mean, I suppose in defence of Lisa Nandi, the, um, the, I suppose at this stage, you're establishing a direction of travel rather than detail, aren't you? Like in terms of like the nature of a campaign and so on. And you're right, like the, the, the debate seemed to move on very quickly towards embracing a set of ideas which... You know, I just don't think that the rise of the party were going anywhere near, like even a year ago. Um, it's very interesting. It seems like, you know, the I think the liberal establishment as well s- still haven't really caught on to this at all. Like I'm not I'm not seeing much of this from, say, the opinion bombers at, at The Guardian, for example, which is, you know, itself is kind of interesting because, you know, Lisa Nandy, as I understand it, is sort of sort of, you know, somewhere between the right of the party and and the soft left. Um, but we've not seen anything much on media from the front runner, have we? Keir Starmer. No, that's um, right. And I, and I think that the, you know, the silence of the Guardian lambs will, you know, will remain if Starmer wins, right? I mean, the Liberal Assumption don't want to talk in these terms about public service media. Um, we'll talk later about, you know, the ways in which they do want to talk about the BBC. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Starmer has been. Um, and I think it's a, it's as it were. It demonstrates the strength of his appeal in some ways that he has. He's been very unforthcoming about lots of things. One of the things he's been basically stayed silent about is media policy, um, and more generally about you know media strategy. The the, the idea seems to be uh, as uh, our collaborator Leo Watkins said on Twitter earlier today I think you know the idea is he'll just be better at doing media um, and that will be uh, that will be enough to kind of get us through he's also been very uh, I mean he has said something about political education which I think is really interesting in that he proposed this idea of a labour college which would teach um, up and coming future stars of the labour movement um, the things that, that the leaders need to know as it were Mm. Um, and it's an incredibly elitist model of um, political education, and it, just, it seems to be quite unselfconsciously so. And there doesn't seem to be any any real grasp um, in his in his sort of political imaginary of the idea that the Labour Party might be a space for general education. Mm. And this is something that's much closer, I think, to um, to, to what Rebecca Long Bailey's been talking about. There's a much there's much more interest in the idea of like how do we educate ourselves. How do we break out of um, this constraining common sense on, you know, issues of political economy and so on? Um, again, as you say, it's, it's, it's presented in quite broad terms, but nevertheless, um, it, it 
it demonstrates a direction of travel for her campaign that's completely missing from Starmer's. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think he's just um, because he's the front runner. He's just kind of not. I mean, weirdly, not felt like it seems under any pressure to really commit to what seems to me to be quite a core issue now. Like, uh, as you say, like there's there, there's been a bit of a shift in terms of people thinking about the media. I mean, there's different perspectives of it, obviously. Like, there's there's a sort of strategic comms sort of perspective and there's a more sort of structural perspective. But he doesn't really seem to have engaged with, with either of them. And I think the, the reason seems to be that there's a sort of untested or unquestioned assumption that he would be good at doing the media. Number one, that he would be good at doing um, or, like, media appearances. And number two, that that would be enough to actually have some significant strategic sorry some significant advances for yeah. the Labour Party yeah you know, so the, these are completely seem to me anyway to be two broadly uninterrogated assumptions which because they're un- uninterrogated seem to you know uh make him seem like a strong candidate but if we start to think about them and unpack them I, I, I don't I don't think that, that that's the case at all well, there's something else going on, isn't there? And he's pitching himself to the membership as a kind of the, almost like a post-political leader. You yeah. know, the idea that the party's been riven with politics over the last four years. Um, and he offers like a respite from factional infighting and so on. Um, now, one of, the, you know, that means that he doesn't have to talk about like political education or Labour Party as a, as a, um, a communicative space or like what what late how labor would approach media policy even um because he sort of he presents himself as a sort of return to normality now what's striking about this to me is that um he's the favored candidate of the people who did most to disrupt the party in the period after 2015 the people who like like you have to put the, the blame for labor's performance really or labor's failure to break through if you don't put it anywhere, you have to put it at the feet of the right of the party, which refused to compromise, refused to accept that the, the membership wanted a left leadership, they wanted a left programme, and did everything in their power to disrupt that project. And they are now going to be rewarded by the membership with the leader of, or the, you know, the leader candidate of their choice. And I think this is a reflection of the lack of political understanding and education in the Labour Party. <laughs> like, Labour members, most Labour members don't seem to understand the Labour Party. Um, still, they they have no real conception of it as a space for ideological struggle, no 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 understanding of a of a, a space that like has contending traditions, contending interests within it, and, and no no understanding of the of which interests Starmer will favour as a matter of you know as a matter of necessity. Um, and I just you know I think I think we are in danger of sort of drifting into a um, uh, a kind of demobilization you know you've got you've got candidates whatever you think of lisa nandy you've got candidates in rebecca long bailey and lisa nandy who are attempting to imagine what the labor party might be like and doing that in public um and then you've got kiss Starmer saying no no it's fine we can we can we can, can carry on with the same structures the same balance of power um between the plp and the membership and so on um we can do that without um without worrying because i'm going to be better at doing politics yeah and also that he's going to be a unity candidate i mean that's the other sort of key theme which which emerges and this is in the context of 
you know, some very hostile noises coming from the right of the party against Rebecca Long Bailey. But again, the thing is like, okay, you can say you're going to be the unity candidate, but again, like, what is that unity going to be based on? Because if you don't say that, um, then it's not really giving a convincing political analysis of how how you're going to do that. So it comes back to the same issue around sort of strategic communications and so on. Mm -hmm. It's like anybody can say that they or like let people say of them that they would be good at X or they would be a unity candidate. But, you know, okay, fine. But you need you need to show how you would do that and on on what terms. And I think, you know, the the differences that emerged in the Corbyn era between um, the majority of the membership and the PLP you know, they, they were over substantive issues. I suppose it's an interesting question, the extent to which, you know, is the PLP actually willing to concede some of the sort of policy ground that was um, taken by the left in in the Corbyn period? I mean, I suspect not. But the, the key issue for them was always one of their own authority within the party. So I suppose the question, you know, what, one question is, if, if Keir Starmer did win in terms of the the future of the party you know would it shift on policy well i think again like you say you have to look at the kind of you know the structures of of the party like it and 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 why it is that it was that it was drifting to the right in the period before before corbyn was elected and, yeah. and what was the basis for those struggles you know and have those objective sort of conditions disappeared and that includes i think you know the underlying political issues which which drove what got called Corbynism just haven't gone away like you know so the 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 basic you know the climate crisis and the crisis in political economy and um and um and and housing has got worse so you know the the actual conditions are not changing um and in terms of yeah political education I mean I agree I think it's very strange for Starmer like this idea of a college because the, the party already has political education officers like what 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 you'd want to do if you wanted to um make the labor party an educational space would be to 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 either reform or create more resources towards that that element of the party because the fact of the matter is that you know a lot of that stuff which i think people have been arguing for on the left and and within corbynism like away from the sort of i suppose like uh parliamentary parliamentarianism within Corbynism was about trying to build up a presence within these particular, you know, around the country and try and build up a sort of more responsive grassroots based party that would be able to address the decline in social democratic, social centre left parties we see all around all around the world. And uh, to me, that's the big question. Like, are, are the political, are these sort of the issues which which Corbyn was a response to going away. Well, no, then we know that they're not, and we know yeah. what the fate of um, centrist parties is in the contemporary period. Yeah. The only exception we've seen from that is 2017, because basically, elect in electoral terms, you know, Corbyn left the Labour Party back where it. I mean, for all of this talk of like 1935 and all of that. Basically, yeah. in terms of the trajectory, just left the Labour Party electorally back where he found it, you know, on the same trajectory. Yeah. The only the yeah. only bump was in 2017. Yeah. Um, and Nandi, I mean, in her own way, is, is at least she's talking about change in the party. I mean, I don't think the direction of travel she's going to stake out for there is um, anything like I would would advocate. But what, yeah, what concerns me about 
Keir Starmer and why I won't be voting for him is that I just I'm just not convinced that there's anything there in terms of a vision to actually address some of these key problems apart from it seems like trying to develop sort of in aesthetic terms a kind a kind of appealing program from the context of people who are just exhausted by like the last three years and a very crushing defeat. Yeah, um, I think by by posing as a kind of post-factional figure, you know, an end, you know, an end to strife. Um, he, I think he, I think he makes himself very appealing. But as you say, the, you know, the reason why, well, why was the why was Labour Party pushed right on so many fronts? Well, it was pushed right because it had no effective means to counter right-wing propaganda, and that has been the case, um, really, you know, for all my adult life. The, the the Labour Party has been trying to make its political path in ideological circumstances not of its own making. Um, and until we grasp the nettle of that, and until we accept the need to build communicative resources to the point where we can actually reject the you know, quasi-fascist narratives around immigration, um, and completely kind of fantastical ideas around political economy, until we can sort of deconstruct or degrade these ideas in the in public debate amongst key demographics we're just gonna we're gonna keep being forced to the right to the right mm. um there's no you know there's no other way i mean frankly it's not even clear to me that blair would be possible now um the idea that you know an exhausted labor um base could be corralled into voting for a blair figure um, that who would also attract sort of middle class southeastern voters. I'm not even sure that that's the, the sort of strategic genius that it was um, that it seemed to be in the, in '97, right? I mean, we've we've like Labour no longer functions as a, as a sort of major party in in most of Scotland, right? It has one MP at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's lost a big chunk of its traditional support in. Um, in the north and the midlands right and and it's not obvious to me that when they leave the conservatives they're necessarily going to go back to the labor party um to the extent you know to the extent that people shifted from labor to conservative which i think can be overstated um but you know labor is just not hegemonic in a lot of areas in the way that it was so like there's a like frankly if if we can't develop a um a program that appeals to um huge numbers of people throughout the country um inside and outside of the quote traditional heartlands which will have to have an insurgent quality right it will have to kind of be based on a new account of reality a more plausible account of reality we can't do that we're just not going to win um and when we lose with a quote more you know more plausible leader on a vaguely left program um, then I think that yeah we will we will be pushed further further to the right. Um, all the kind of pressure on on Starmer is going to be towards dropping elements of um, the 2017 manifesto, let, let alone 2019. Um, and you know you can see without a transformed media space how that's kind of that's the logic of his position. Yeah. Anyway, so. Go and vote for Rebecca Long Bailey. Frankly, she said more interesting things about the media. She said more interesting things about um, party reform. If you think that we need a uh, you know a telegenic leader and that will be enough, um, then we're, we're wasting our time here. <laughs> um, let's talk about the moral mace.
couple of weeks ago, the Moral Maze managed to shoehorn the moral purpose of the BBC into its format. And I think I think the first thing to do is talk a bit about the the panel. So there are four regular panelists along with the presenter. Um, and um, we've got, you know, it's quite an interesting composition because I think it tells us quite a lot about what we make of, uh, you know, what, what the BBC makes of, of, as it were, the moral spectrum. So we've got Giles Fraser. Giles Fraser is, uh, he's an Anglican vicar. Um, and he's kind of a staple, I think, of BBC coverage. He's a sort of Anglican chancer. He sort of talks mm. a communi communitarian talk. He talks about togetherness a lot. He talks about the need. Um, I think he's he's sort of formally on the on the left, though, isn't he? he? He's kind of he's one of these people who sort of started started out on the sort of um, I wouldn't say quite the radical left, but like quite solidly on the left, and and then has drifted sort of into communitarianism and then into conservatism. Um, I think he was, my... my recollection is he was somewhat sort of caught up in uh, a bit of a flurry of publicity because he was adjacent to the St. Paul's occupations. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, I think that's how he sort of became a, a name to conjure with um, and made broadly sympathetic noises um, yeah. about them and ran, ran into Vip static with the uh, Bishop of London. Um there's a whole other there's a whole other conversation to be had about ecclesiastical politics in Britain <laughs> because we're such an advanced nation, Tom. Um, but um, yeah, so he he sort of bangs the communitarian drama. He's, would I think he, you'd struggle to call him a leftist nowadays? You've got yeah. well, no, he's very he's he actually um, he wrote an article for the um, you know the cow site that um, about how he'd um, voted conservatism and how conservatism was about sort of uh, having a sceptical view about human nature and, and so on, um, which is like your, your classic sort of misreading of um, the politics of conservatism. So he's, he's, he's a solid out and out conservative now, but I, I think he, um, I think he, he sort of, yeah, has this kind of um, broadly sort of, yeah, well, maybe he doesn't have a background on the left actually, but I, I think that that was sort of how he was, yeah, positioned. So I'm sort of left communitarian at one stage, I suppose. Yeah, I think people read into him um, a more a more radical point of view than than he perhaps had. Um, you've also got Matthew Taylor. Matthew Taylor now runs the RSA, the Royal Society for the Arts. Uh, he was a uh, he was a head of the Downing Street Policy Unit, I think, under Blair. So uh, I think somewhat towards the end of Blair's premiership, he was involved in policy making for Downing Street. Um, he's also a hereditary BBC figure in the sense that his father, Laurie Taylor, is a long time presenter <clears throat> of Thinking Aloud, which I can never remember whether that's allowed as in permitted or allowed as in out loud. But anyway, um, <clears throat> well, being, a, being a good BBC broadcaster, I think it's hereditary anyway. It's, it's, there's a gene for it. Is that because the left is politically correct? Like it's not able to recognise us, but um, I mean, that's my understanding. There are a lot of scientific surveys about about the distribution of the BBC gene in the population, <laughs> yeah. um, and we're we're getting really close now to identifying it and isolating it, and then I, yeah. all, of the, all of this nonsense about opening up the BBC to um to outsiders can just be yeah. You know, no, no, we can page. just we breed a breed a pool of um of profit. <laughs> we can grow these. Hopefully, the technology will be such that we can grow these people. We can grow them in tanks, exactly. Um. And then we got so we got so there's two and now again I suppose he's a sort of I think he would describe himself as a sort of left liberal 
centre-left figure, um, but certainly more more liberal than left in many ways. Um, he does another programme on the BBC, on BBC Four, where he gets bright young things to come up with policy solutions, wow. uh, which is sort of demented because they, they're all about 22 and no square root fuck all about whatever they're talking about, um, but are incredibly confident because they've been to elite universities. Um, uh, and I think he's, you know, he's sort of, he's part of the cult. What's of the, that program called? I can't, I can't, I can't remember. I think it's called something like, you know, the ideas kettle or, you know, the, the thought distillery, or I, I don't know. It's, you know, something along those, those sorts of lines. It's a sort of, um, many, you know, it's a sort of pretend think tank that comes yeah. up with sort of smart solutions to homelessness that say don't involve a land value tax or, interventions in the housing market yeah. um, but that you know prefer the idea of maybe an inflatable house or you know floating cities or something um so you've got matthew taylor and then you've got this this new relative newcomer who's called andrew doyle and he's this i would sort of say he's the anti-woke bloke yeah he 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 has a, he has a, a like an, a politically incorrect comedy night i think um where people talk about things they're not allowed to say at length. Yeah. Um, and and again, he's an interesting, like, look, looking at the panel as a whole, I mean, I think he's an interesting sort of addition because it's sort of the BBC sort of saying, yes, there's a culture war going on and it's legitimate and we have to we have to include one of its number in, you know, in what is the flagship, supposedly the flagship radio show for talking about <clears throat> moral issues. Um, so you've got four people and, and so 25% of... Did we, did we cover um, Melanie Phillips? Yes, well, let's talk about Melanie. You, you, well, I, you've got things to say about Melanie, I'm sure, as, I, as have I. Um, yeah. She is and has made... A, she's made her career as a kind of uh, a liberal apostate, hasn't she? She used to work for The Guardian. <clears throat> it took against uh, cultural egalitarianism in The Guardian, I think particularly in the context of education originally. Um and and made a break with the liberal establishment, um, arguing for uh, like I don't know what sort of streaming in schools, and has then got has gone on to have a, a really sort of pungent career, uh, challenging uh, challenging liberal pieties, yeah. um, and is now really quite let's put it an outspoken um, critic of Islam. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, she's kind of interesting, actually, in the context of, uh, you know, the arrival of this Andrew Doyle character, because that's, you know, really, I think that a lot of the stuff that's going on around these sort of so-called culture wars and the revision of this kind of, you know, scientific racism and all of that, which we're seeing on the fringes of conservatism now, you know, Melanie Phillips, in terms of like her political journey that she went on, she was sort of... I mean, let's say sort of proximate to some of those like early sort of, you know, socially conservative movements uh, around Thatcherism, like in the in the, the early 1990s. I mean, she, she's she's very much her own sort of um, figure, I think. You know, she's she's not like um, she, she, she's not really the sort of aligned um, intellectual that you that, that you sometimes get like around British conservatism. But she 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 sort of starts off on the as a sort of left liberal or like at least a liberal. And then, yeah, she, I mean, actually, she does more than Giles Fraser. I mean, it seems I got that wrong, but like she actually does go through this sort of journey from communitarianism, you know, to neo-social conservatism and, and various forms of, 
neoconservatism but I remember like sort of looking into her background years ago trying to sort of make sense of her trajectory and one of the interesting things was she was seemed to be sort of knocking about the social affairs unit which was like the sort of cultural wing of the institute of economic affairs which at that point was um inviting Charles Murray um to discuss you know the bell curve and questions of the underclass and so on yeah and and who's had a really who's had quite a strong influence now on that kind of revives revived conservatism and and it's you know this this kind of defense of basically a, a very sort of staunch defense of the principle of inequality but also the role of culture as opposed to sort of political economy in in driving social problems basically and and that I mean she's she's been very much part of that and as you say then has become this sort of truth talker um to like liberal complacency and I suppose you know she's she's probably never has been interested in free free speech as this lot but like Andrew Doyle is kind of yeah I think it's very much cut from the same sort of cloth really well, um, he, he, he writes for Spiked, so he's part of that whole, um, I mean, we should talk about this a little bit more when we get into this about like how they see politics on the moral maze, but like a big part of that, because it wasn't um, Claire Fox, has she been on this panel at one stage? Yeah, she was a regular. Is she, she, was is she regular. not doing it anymore, do you know? I don't think she does it regularly because she's an MEP, well, has been an MEP until recently. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, um, the so Andrew Doyle's sort of sitting in for her a bit, isn't he? Because he's he's one of the sort of spikes. I suppose the difference being that she had was she for a time was like the left winger on the panel, right? I'm presuming they're are they are they sort of placing Andrew Doyle as a left winger? It's hard to tell, really. I presume not. Yeah, I don't think he I don't think he sort of talks uh, a left game on political economy. Something didn't in the episode that we listened to. Yeah. Uh, and so what you, I mean, I mean, if that is something that he would subscribe to, then it's certainly something not, if that's not what's got him onto the programme. I mean, yeah. looking at the presenters, you know, the, well, the panellists, Michael Burke is, uh, is the presenter and he's another um, kettlefish as well. But looking at the presenters, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because actually you've got basically two soft left liberals mm-hmm. um, and then two social conservatives. Yes. And that, that actually seems to be the cleavage that it's organised around. Uh, that and and I think it's always useful to set that against what we could call Jeremy Gilbert's twenty five percent, right? The idea which Jeremy Gilbert's talked about that there are basically twenty five percent of the electorate who will always vote for the for the for the Labour Party and and will almost always wish it was far more left wing. Yeah, um, the twenty five percent of people are committed to nationalisation. Committed to you know heavy heavy duty intervention redistribution and so on, um, and who are coming out of a um, uh, a left Labour tradition, and as I say would 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 identify themselves in 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 um, in terms of a kind of class politics. That twenty five percent of the of the electorate simply never features as a yes. kind of legitimate interlocutor in in what the BBC presents as. You know, a balanced um, Habermasian public sphere where you know different views can contend, and I think that this is you know it's a really important omission because of course it means that by excluding it, by denying the existence of this major strand in the public and major strand, if you like, in intellectual life, it denies that strand any opportunity to reach out into the into the broader population and actually improve its ideas through debate. Right? Mm. I mean. 
the 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 one of the key things I think one of the key features of the left in my lifetime is that up until the arrival of Corbyn in 2015, there was this, this kind of incredible paralysis, right? This complete lack of of um, energy and excitement around left wing ideas, and really no kind of modernising project that got any traction in the wider public. And and I think the BBC played a really important sort of retarding role um, in denying the left any opportunity to sort of to function in this in this supposedly capacious um, and perhaps, you know, too left wing public sphere. Um, But as I say, that that voice simply does not exist. As yeah, a, I mean, I think on this, in this case, I mean, we 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 need to get on to talk about like the the witnesses, and maybe we should say a little bit about how the format of this show works for people who haven't ever subjected themselves to it. But you you can see exactly the same pattern in the witnesses. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary. Like you've got in the, in both cases, like you've got yeah, you've got four panelists, and then you've got four witnesses. As you say, there just isn't there's no there's no left perspective among them. It's kind of extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting actually because like. When you're saying about like you know left opinions like being developed or strengthened in in the process of debate and communication and so on, I mean you could argue you could argue as well that actually you know liberalism and conservatism becomes less sort of vibrant and responsive simply because of this fact because you know I it made me think of Corey Robbins like idea that like conservatism in 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 victory just loses any sort of like um vibrancy and i think it's true of liberalism you know when you think of like well the great sort of um contributions from from the liberal sort of left tradition a lot a lot of that has been like grappling with and in dialogue with 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 marxism and the radical left doesn't it and when, when you see just liberals and conservatives conservatives in this sort of um you know the these kinds of debates and i suppose this is also a mainstay of like the style of the American media, isn't it? I mean, this is absolutely classic in terms of what wh- where they see the political spectrum lying. The actually like the substantive issues just become a bit a bit lost as well because none of them seem to be rooted in because it, it's not it's not just that certain sections of opinion are being reflected. It's also that just certain you know realities about how society functions are just being left out of the whole conversation, and it just yeah. becomes all a bit. Yeah. Um, a bit lacking in substance, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with the show, basically, what happens is you've got this, you've got this panel of um, carefully politically balanced judges who then hear from a group of witnesses on whatever the particular discussion is for the day. For the day, and it always is built around, you know, this this sort of moral questions, which I mean, is sort of an interesting thing in itself. I mean, going back to like. Um, Claire Fox and and the Spike lot, you know, their big thing actually was this idea that morality is itself, um, you know, they're obsessed with moral panics, aren't they? So the idea that any kind of moral position on something is 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 itself like a sort of busybody kind of interference with with people's lives and so on. And then there's Melanie Phillips, who whose basic thesis is that uh, Britain has lost any kind of sense of you know collective moral purpose, and that's that's led to this kind of cultural um weakening and uh, and that in turn has been like yeah connected to all kinds of I guess like social pathologies from like terrorism to you know family breakdown and da 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 yeah but yeah I mean the weird thing is like there's not I don't know like other programs I've listened to you can sort of listen to it and they never really get to grips really with any moral issues particularly like or at least moral ethical issues in, in the way that I would 
understand it. But anyway, the the witnesses. So um, in this case, we've got four witnesses like who appear to speak on the the moral purpose of the BBC. Um, yeah. The first is this guy Robin Aiken, who yeah. has written a yeah. number of books. Or, he, or... He's the one who writes books about the BBC itself, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he he um. He's written all. Well, really, what he's done is he's rewritten one book like two or three times. Yeah. Um, which is basically reflecting on his time at the BBC and making a series of unsubstantiated claims about the sort of collective political culture of the BBC. It's failure to re- represent like socially conservative views. Um, the idea that, and you know, he does describe in some of the chapters. I mean, because I've I've read these books. Yeah. Like, in yeah. in some cases, he does describe like you know real problems with the bbc sort of editorial policy but he he interprets he basically interprets everything through a lens of like the bbc just agrees with whatever the left does and the left obviously for him meaning meaning blairism and it's quite funny because he does this revised version where he goes through these different sort of policy areas he'd identified in the original version of the book and then he has this kind of like uh, epilogue at the end of every chapter, almost all of which he reflects that well, actually the BBC's made a lot of progress on this. You know, this has got a lot better in the last ten years. Um, and like he completely, he has a completely wild interpretation of, of, of the BBC on Iraq as well, but because this obviously confuses him because like you know the, the his would be left government led by Tony Blair is the one that's pushing towards war, so he ends up sort of tying himself up in knots because of course he can't make sense of like the BBC as being like an essentially status organisation that's orientated towards power. It's a politically correct organisation that's orientated towards the liberal left. So he just yeah. like, yeah, he's all over the place. So anyway, there's him. So he's the BBC, the the guy who, ex-BBC person who claims that everyone's sort of liberal left on the BBC. Yeah, um, and again, there's that, that really important conflation of the liberal liberalism and the left, isn't there? It's, yeah, yeah. He says it's a left-wing organisation. Um, it's there's a sort of there's a sort of consensual S and M relationship between conservative critics of the BBC and liberal defenders, um, because you know liberals like being told off for being too liberal. They actually, you know, it can't they can't get off on it. Mm. Um, you know, maybe we are too open to to you know uh, I don't know so you know social liberation. Maybe we are. We're not sufficiently, you know, thoughtful about the effects that um, liberalism can have on the vulnerable and so on. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, the, the 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 he he arrives and he says that um, the BBC is too socially conservative. I mean, you you're the, the sort of the empirical expert on the BBC. I mean, I would imagine there is there's quite a lot of evidence for the BBC favouring social liberalism over social conservatism, or or is that is that itself wrong? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That actually, funnily enough, there's there's not a huge amount of work that that looks into the sort of. I mean, I guess it's pretty hard to measure, isn't it? In a way, it is hard to measure. But the, the one that the one that springs to mind though is the big study that that Cardiff did in 2012, and I think it was 2011 and 2015. So they did two studies, and they looked at coverage of the EU, coverage of immigration and uh, coverage of religious issues so that that's that's the major study that's looked into this um and they found it to be like relatively balanced between different factions of the political elite with a slight leaning towards um anti-immigrant um anti-eu view so like they didn't find a strong bias towards 
like um, conservatives' opinions, but but a slight bias in so much as there was anything. So that's in so much as there's much good evidence um, measuring this stuff. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's basically wrong. Um, but then, of course, what they did, what they started doing is shifting the goalposts again. So they said, oh, and, and Brexit, I think, has shifted this debate a bit. How often do you see people who actually, you know, support Brexit on the BBC? Um, I would say, like, empirically, they have some case here because, like, most of the British elite were not, not were not in favour of the Brexit that we've ended up with. So in terms of like the BBC's booking policy and their basis orientation towards yeah establishment power, like yeah. that, that you could probably find you know you'd probably find that there there wasn't much balance there. But when it comes to like yeah so, sort of let's say Euroscepticism and pro EU opinion, I mean all of the evidence suggests the opposite basically. I mean the funniest thing that I thought Aitken said in the, during the course of this was that. Uh, the Academy has privileged access to the BBC. He says there's a sort of symbiotic relationship between BBC producers and academics. And I was sort of saying, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, they just they just won't stop hassling me about um, coming on the BBC. So it's been it's been absolutely relentless the last three years. It's just like, you know, the one extraordinary one well, extraordinary it's... thing to claim, because there's, there wasn't there's not a single academic on witness in this program. Well, now this brings us on to the next one. The next, uh, the next witness is, is Professor Philip Booth. Oh, I beg your pardon. Okay, yeah, yeah. of course, I've so, forgotten that Philip Booth is an academic. He, uh, he is a, um, he's an economics professor, but he's also a long-standing um, figure in the Institute of Economic Affairs, which um, many of our listeners will know is one of the sort of most venerable free market or neoliberal, more accurately, think tanks. Uh, one of the, the sort of um, laboratories for developing Thatcherite ideas going back to the 1960s, it's the 1970s, um, and he arrives and he he starts talking about mutualising the BBC, which yeah. is, when he says that, he means turning it That's into... Music to your ears, surely, then. Well, this is a really interesting point, as I was sort of, I was thinking about this, I mean, when he says mutualization, he, he means turning it into a subscription service, right? Yeah. So it would become something that people would opt to support and would, would access its output because they paid for it. Um, and it would have a mutual structure. Now, if anyone has got a, a nationwide account, nationwide building society account or a bank account, they will be a member of a mutual, right? Now, if you imagine... But being a member of the, the nationwide mutual gives you any significant say in the nationwide operations. You're utterly delusional. Um, the I think, and I think this is this is quite a useful warning for the left. Um, there is a certain amount. There will always be a certain amount of chit chat on the right about the John Lewis model, about mutualisation, mm. um, about you know about you know degrees of um, uh, participation governance. Now. It, it, the trade union movement has always looked at this very, you know, with great suspicion, I think quite rightly. But there is an enormous kind of urgency, I think, for the left to, to think through what we mean when we talk about public and democratic control of an institution like the BBC. Um, because I think you and I would want to defend the principle of universality. We'd want to defend the notion that um, there is some, some, uh, there is some potential, if you like, in the idealised vision of the BBC um, as a space for um, democratic uh, debate, um, but that it needs to be, um, uh, as it were, um, 
saturated with opportunities for people to engage meaningfully, to have some degree of voice in the national conversation. And there are, you know, there are important questions about how you make good on that, that notion of communicative equality. But certainly the idea of turning it into a subscription only service with a mutual structure is um, uh, is 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 absolutely not the way to go. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it, that his his proposal is the one that is permitted airtime, right? Now, in in recent in recent weeks, one of the contenders for the Labour leadership, Rebecca Long Bailey, um, has made proposals to to make the BBC more effectively public as an institution, more accountable to its viewers and listeners and so on. Um, and yet it's the IEA, the, the, the Thatcherite think tank, that is given a platform to talk about its proposals for the BBC. Yeah, uh, and is it the, the only the only contributor really who actually has some sort of idea about how the BBC might be transformed? I mean, right. Ro- he Robin wants Aiken... to change the gender, isn't he, right? Yeah. Um, Aiken wants it to, to behave slightly differently. Um, the other, the other, um, the other speakers are essentially uh, defenders of the BBC, um, yeah. but he is offering a, um, a a transformative proposal for the BBC, which comes directly out of a you know a free market um, ideology, which is which is opposed to the idea of a um, you know of a of a publicly sustained um, uh, communicative space. Right. I think it's worth it's worth saying adding by the way that you know it's it's quite interesting in a way that they they have sort of pivoted towards this this mutual model because classically the you know the IEA has has always been an advocate of private property and you know so-called sort of shareholder democracy and so on mm-hmm. and I, I mean just to add on what you were saying in terms of the subscription model I mean I think this is the absolute key element for the for the left to sort of um understand is that the bbc should be defended as a a universal service or public media should be should afford universal access which is precisely why we don't want a subscription model because a subscription model would be creating these paywalls which would exclude certain people from consuming it so it just wouldn't be the bbc anymore but you know, there are lots of different ways, I suppose, which the right might want to reimagine the BBC. You know, at one point Thatcher wanted it to take advertising. There were other people who were sort of, you know, saying that it could be abolished altogether. Where there, there was um, people who, yeah, wanted different parts of it to be privatised. And this is this is quite it's quite interesting that the IA sort of ended up here. I mean, I, I, I've been sort of it'd be interesting to sort of trace their positions on the BBC over time. It's maybe something something we could do on another occasion but yeah it's, it's interesting that they arrive here because he, he kind of resists the idea that um you know i want to private he wants to privatize the bbc and and therefore sort of does manage to neutralize certain certain potential criticisms um but ultimately i suppose what it's coming back to is the iea's vision of sort of consumer sovereignty and the objection to like a uh, collective provision isn't it i mean that's that's ultimately yeah. what, what he's wanted, wanted to push back on exactly that and i think that the one of the one of the weaknesses of the bbc that, that the right hit on relentlessly is the license fee um they can dress up their their um opposition to public media as a kind of um 
humanitarian concern for those least able to pay mm. license fee. Um, and I do think it's important that, that the left, as it were, disaggregates public media from the license fee. Um, I don't think the license fee is defensible. I think public media is. Um, and I think, you know, the, the fact that he's able to make this argument reflects the booking priorities and assumptions of the moral maze. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the surface plausibility of the rights attack on the BBC and its desire effectively to um, enclose it, its surface plausibility comes in large part from the fact that they've got a point about license fee. It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible way to fund public media. Um, and the, but then that, you know, that again raises some important questions about, well, how do you fund public media in a way that keeps it um, protected from um, politicians? in the way that the BBC pretends or has pretended that it is protected from politicians now, right? The yeah. BBC, as you know, long said, because of the unique, unique way we're funded, um, we are, you know, we are, we're insulated against um, political meddling. Well, that's bullshit, um, frankly. And it was proven to be bullshit by the behaviour of the coalition government in 2010. They just yeah. arrived at the BBC. I mean, to be honest, Dan, like the entire the entire history of the BBC, which is you know very well documented, has shown us to be bullshit again and again. I I find it like very frustrating when people just keep saying things which is so plainly and obviously in, contradicted by all the evidence. It's just like right, oh my god, like the amount of times I've seen people say this, like just wheel out this line. Yeah. Oh, you know, license fee affords them independence. So in what in what possible sense? Yeah. And know, again, like, in what sense does it do that? Like, and then no one ever get no one is ever asked to justify that and then what's so weird about it is that like the argument is being made precisely at the point at which the license fee revenue is being undermined as part of a political strategy to undermine like further erode the independence of the bbc so the actual like the actual circumstances of make making this argument i where we find ourselves now on the um moves towards decolonization of the license fee disproves the point that's being made in defense of it and yet it continues i just like yeah. I just yeah. I just find that extraordinary. Well, that brings us on neatly on to um Jonathan Friedland's contribution um on the show on Mor the Moral Maze, where he talks about the BBC in contradiction to the United States broadcasting environment as being a space where kind of reality can be recognized. And instead of yeah. you know, instead of one person saying it's raining and one person saying it's not you know, the BBC journalist goes outside and finds out if it's, if you know, what the truth of the matter is, right? And he sort of celebrates the BBC as a bulwark against a kind of, you know, vulcanisation of the mind of the kind that you are supposed to see in the United States. And I think your, you know, your, your, your point just now about how completely detached from reality the discussion about the BBC itself is kind of gives the lie to that, right? It's simply not true that the BBC has been able to um, present to the public a, a tolerably accurate picture of social reality. It just hasn't. It hasn't done that historically. Um, it's completely mis misunderstood what's going on around it, um, and has, has, you know, I think quite, quite kind of sincerely believe things that are simply not true because that was its job. It was its job as a, as a corporation or as a kind of collective. For example, to believe that self-regulation in the in the financial sector worked, right? That was just something that you just everyone had to believe, and 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 it like if you stood up, I mean, you know, Aitken, um, Robin Aitken talks a lot about how he felt, you know, out, you know, not at home in the BBC, and and everyone was too liberal and 
presumably smoking joints and laughing at him. Yeah. Um, but the you know if you'd stood up in 2007 and said guys the financial system is going to is going to blow up it's fucked right you would have you would have felt incredibly isolated because you would you know that just wasn't something that was admissible in thought um and and so yeah the idea that the bbc um maintains a kind of space for exploring reality I just think it's for the birds, right? Just, yeah, but also the the example that they give in the show, so the, the in the moral notes in this discussion, is the one of climate change, which I think is you know it is a good one. Again, like I mean, Jonathan Friedman's not an idiot. Like he knows what the strong arguments are for having reality-based journalism, and this is a good one. But the thing is, that it misses out is the fact that the BBC arrived at the position of not balancing its position on climate change because it was actually found to be in breach of its impartiality requirements on this point. So the BBC was precisely not doing this until until eventually it manages to um, introduce a policy which doesn't balance climate science with, you know, the sorts of people who um, fund the Institute for Economic Affairs, you know, this is basically funded by the fossil fuel industry. So the BBC does eventually arrive at that point, but it doesn't arrive that of its own accord through the basis of its own sort of um, right. values or, or, or regulatory structure, or at least not through any kind of direct route. And the actual debate going on on the BBC in this circumstance like it seems like, although she doesn't say so explicitly, that Melanie Phillips is annoyed with the contention made by Jonathan Friedland that climate that 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 climate change is not a legitimate controversy. In other words, on this program, there is seems to be, although it's it doesn't really sort of develop or come into the open. There anyway seems to be some sort of contestation about whether whether actually this is sound or whether we should we should be having debates around climate change so you know it's not even performing it on on this program so um yeah i mean it's, it's funny thing like this sort of epistemic kind of argument for for the bbc that jonathan friedland makes because it's not i mean one thing i would say as well is that he, he says that the BBC sort of aspires to impartiality and this is a good thing. And I would agree with that. But like the whole of the British broadcast media is regulated by the same basic requirements around accuracy and impartiality. So this actually this isn't actually something that's unique to the BBC. I mean, I think there are important things that are unique to the BBC, but this is actually shared by all broadcasters. And the reason is it's it's part of the regulatory requirements for anyone who has a broadcasting license, which is underscored by public regulation so the idea that this this in particular is unique to the bbc um i don't think any way stands up but it you know it, it's a sort of interesting argument that he makes and so far but it's basically just a contemporary version of the classic argument that always gets made about the bbc which is that this is a kind of yeah cultural bulwark against the sort of a slide into like you know the the, the nightmare that is American political culture. So this has been the argument's been made for decades around the BBC. It's the new version of it, which is basically um, sort of adapted various liberal responses to Trump, isn't it? So he, he says that there's no agreed upon possibility of a body of facts. I mean, this is just this is just an argument that's been developed around yeah post truth and 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 fake news and all of this stuff that everyone's got very excited about in in responding to the the, the rise of of, of right wing nationalism but it's basically just a sort of um to my mind anyway it's just a new version of that basic argument about the bbc
here and and why that's preferable to the American model. And again, I think there are good arguments you can make for that. But the idea, as you say, that the BBC itself um, is is regularly functions on the basis of agreed facts. I mean, it just doesn't it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And in a way, this comes back to this question that we talked about earlier about the BBC's relation with, with academia, because and it's not just that I was thinking, God, you know, like they never invite me on. It's also that um, they just don't they just don't draw on academic work um, very much at all in their routine reporting. You know, if you look at um, source appearances and content studies, academics very rarely feature. And yeah. the institution of science and the academy is precisely the institution which is supposed to um, do what Jonathan Friedman thinks the BBC is doing, like, you know, developing an agreed possibility of a body of facts. That yeah. is what science and academia are supposed to do. So yeah. if, if there was an argument for the BBC, it should be that it should reorientate itself away from the political elite, away from this bizarre political spectrum that we see sort of paraded on the moral maze and, yeah. and towards more serious forms of expertise. And I think, you know, that that would be a strong liberal argument for the BBC. But we don't yeah. even we don't even get that here. You know, we we get some some fairly naive idea that the BBC itself is 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 producing truth for us and, and, and establishing things um, yeah. as opposed to being part of the world of political spin, you know, yeah. which in reality is, is what we tend to see from from the BBC. So well, that, that, that's a really useful distinction, isn't it? Because, as you say, there is a there is an academia that looks it investigates social reality seriously. Um, and you, as you say, you could make a kind of top down elitist case for um, a broadcaster that takes that world seriously. Yeah, yeah that, I think that would be the sort of strong liberal patrician argument for, yeah, for yeah. the BBC. They'll take the BBC as it is, you know, but, rather than this sort of fantastical version. But yeah, yeah as I said, we don't really get that. But what, what, what you get instead is someone like Matthew Taylor, who basically thinks that the BBC aligns with academia because he's friends with some academics, right? Yeah. They share a social milieu with some some academics, but interestingly, they have a very uncritical idea of what expertise is. So, you know, the most cited um, group uh, Mike Berry talks about in, um, in, his, in, in his work, in his study of, uh, I think, the Today programme, you know, the most cited expert group was City Economists, right? Mm. Now, as far as the BBC bookers are concerned, a City Economist is an expert, right? Yeah. But, but in reality, a City Economist is someone who, who is, a, is an intellectual mercenary for the financial interest, right? They, their job is to defend the financial sector. Yeah. They're not so serious academics. Sort of embedded expertise, isn't it? <clears throat> it is, isn't it? It's embedded expertise, but it's also kind of, you know, it's an overused word, but it's a kind of weaponized expertise, right? Mm -hmm. It's there to sound plausible, but to promote a set of sectional interests. Now, a social scientist is many things, but that's not what they're, you know, that's not what social scientists is trying to do. Um, and the BBC, again, if it was taking seriously that patrician idea of finding out the facts of the matter, would be a space where you could test the claims of um, economists against, say, the claims of sociologists, right? Let's have an argument about what, what expertise really is, right? Instead of this thing where, oh, I happen to know this bloke, they've got a degree, so they're an expert, right? Or they've got a title at a bank. Yeah. Um, economists, so therefore they're an expert. And this is kind of this is sort of this is childlike in its sort of naivety. Um, so now the final um, 
the final guest we should mention quickly is Claire Enders. Yeah. Um, who Michael Burke hilariously calls a consultant uh, when he introduces her. Um, she's not. She runs a very, very influential um, research company. Um, called, is it Enders Research, I think? Enders Analysis. Enders Analysis. Um, and she's basically, she's there to sort of very eloquently and very um, forthrightly say, yay, the BBC and yay, the licence fee, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. her role, which again, I think is problematic because it, it tangles up together um, the notion of public broadcasting or public media with a television licence, which I think, as you say, is is uh, is tactically problematic and like there's very little talk of the morality of that but i think it's morally very difficult to justify um yeah. and anyway so she talks as i say she talks a good game about how since the radio is only two pence a day and uh stuff like that um so you have two you have two speakers who are broadly in favor of the bbc you have two speakers who are broadly opposed the um the objections take a social conservative line or they take a free market line i suppose as you say with this sort of mutual um camouflage mutualization camouflage um and then you have two fairly full-throated defenses of the bbc um but but i think as we've intimated already no, like no serious critiques of the bbc actually feature in the program yeah yeah it's very strange um like I, mean, I think you know, what is the morality of a um of a public broadcaster that um misleads the population about the invasion of iraq in 2003 right i mean you know what is the morality of that right what moral issues does it raise that we were so completely lied to um mm -hmm. the, the period running up to march 2003 like what are the moral implications of the bbc hiring and retaining jimmy savile for over over a period of decades like what is the morality of of what was going on in the production of Top of the Pops and um, other you know children's or youth oriented programming? Right, These, there are really important moral questions about unaccountable power at the BBC, um, but none of them really appeared. Yeah, it's funny in a way because there wasn't. I suppose insofar, and this this is something about I think the, the sort of structure of the show is that morality is, is sort of like. There, there were sort of moral cases in the sort of sense of like, okay, sort of social conservatism and that, okay, you know, the BBC should be basically upholding Christian morality it was something that I think um, Rob Aitken said at, at one stage. And there, there, were, there were comments by some of the panellists, I, I think from Matthew Taylor around the morality of like children's television, which I think, you know, was all points well taken in terms of like, you know, the influence of big corporations on um on, on on kids which i think was a sound moral case but apart from that yeah there wasn't there wasn't a huge amount of debate around morality i mean i suppose i suppose the interesting way they might have done this is sort of think a little bit about the original moral purpose of the bbc and this would be the more sort of orthodox way of approaching this is you say that okay we've had this sort of moral vision of what 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 broadcasting should be, i.e. like, you know, bringing the best of culture and, you know, all those sorts of patrician class inflected ideas about, uh, you know, and he was a very sound moralist and they sort of start the show on that note. Yeah. But then they don't, they don't re really go into that anymore. So like, I, I think that's a sort of strange because like what the way I would expect a sort of fairly mainstream 
programme about the moral purpose of the BBC would, would be to do that and then say, OK, well, what, what would the moral purpose, what would a contemporary moral purpose of the BBC be? You know, that might have that may, might have made for an interesting moral discussion about like, OK, you know, because it, starting from what kind of society do we want therefore yeah. what kind of broadcaster do we want and, and then then you might have been able to pick out some of these different uh liberal and conservatives assumptions and you know god forbid you might even invite someone from the left onto the program to have right so there what doesn't and i think this is more this sort of generalizes about the, the 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 approach that the program takes is that they they simply see certain sorts of controversy as being worth entertaining um, and they are they invite people onto the show to make that con- controversial case right I mean full disclosure I mean I think a while ago I was asked to appear on it and I said well can I do it on the phone and they said no you have to go to Canterbury and we'll pay you 70 pounds I thought you know what I, I don't have much self-respect <laughs> <laughs> I think you mentioned that. I think you mentioned that on the last podcast with Julia. Actually, oh, I can't remember if that got into the final cut or not, or maybe it was when we were discussing but anyway, before. But the the but the but I suppose but the point I'm making is that there are certain sorts of controversy they're willing to entertain, um, but they do so with this sort of fixed bench um, of uh, interlocutors on the as it were the home team. Um, and nothing really is resolved. Nothing really is advanced. As you say, there's no attempt to think through, well, the BBC used to have a moral purpose. Uh, BBC is in controversy at the moment. What is its moral purpose now? Instead of which they're like, oh, well, the IEA are somebody we have to take notice of because they've got lots of rich backers. Um, Claire Enders, we have to take, 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 take note of because she's a big deal in media analysis or media research. Jonathan Friedman's on The Guardian, so obviously have him, Robert Aitken. He tells us he tells us off for being too liberal, and it's like it's completely arbitrary, um, and there is no yeah, there's no sort of unifying structure for the questions or for the way that the program proceeds. I mean, like, how do you re- reconcile conversations about social conservatism with the question of mutualization or like a shared terrain, a fact, right? You need like these are all completely sort of incommensurable debates, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. Actually, they, none none of the perspectives really speak to each other at all, do they? Like no. They're all coming from yeah. It's fairly in sort sort of incommensurable. Yeah, they have. As they to have what's the the idea that they're things that we have to take seriously, and we have to ask like it's really important questions like well why isn't there any attempt to engage with the the le- the left on this issue right because as I say it's like we've literally just had one of the contenders for the leader of the Labour Party make some proposals about changing the structure of the BBC, which are informed by a kind of moral vision of public broadcasting, right? So yeah. like I'm not saying they should just accept that without without question, but that, that surely should be part of any sort of coherent attempt to understand its moral purpose. Yeah, I mean it's not like it's not like they shouldn't be aware of these points, you know, because of the well number one, like we had Re- Rebecca Long Bailey's statement which which was it in you know it was reported in the time so it's not like it, it wasn't on the bbc's you know radar and then we also had the metagalit lecture which jeremy corbyn gave as well which outlined a similar yeah. sort of agenda but then we we also had like an article by lisa nandy which was also in a, in a different sort of way you know offering a, a similar set of ideas so you know it's it's not like it's not like it would be very you know it's not that difficult to try and like get a sense that there may be perspectives out there that don't fall within this kind of yeah. debate. Yeah. And it, 
I mean, I don't know how much this is because it's hard to sort of say to what extent this is a problem with the moral maze as a program or the wider sort of political culture. I mean, I, I sort of tend to think that like the moral maze is something of an outlier, even at the BBC for sort of how, you know, basically conservative it is in in, in its orientation. Like it's not because they, having said that, you know, they, they're balancing sort of liberal and conservative contributions i mean there's no doubt that the whole thrust of the program is like you know broadly leaning towards conservatism and like that it's i don't know do you, i mean do you do you think this is the, the the moral maze is completely um symptomatic of the bbc or do you think i i, I tend to think that it's it's kind of the, the the weaknesses you identified which we can see sort of across it a lot of different bbc programming is, is just even more explicit in um, the Moral Maze and other programmes, but but maybe not. Maybe it's just the sort of start of the programme and the presence of, you know, Melanie Phillips that makes it seem particularly... Um... Yeah, I think it might be it might be to do with with that, because she is, I think, I think it's fair to say she is quite an extreme figure in many, in many ways. Um, there was like... a funny bit in the show where, um, where Claire Enders referred to uh, Melanie Phillips as being part of the Westminster um, bubble, or yeah, like Westminster was quite, Village. That was, that was quite is, a good hit, wasn't it? it was a good yeah, it was quite right. funny. Like she yeah. didn't really, she didn't really come back. With it. She was obviously quite taken aback by it um, because she sort of tried to murmur something about it being like flattering or something. But, did, yeah, but, but she's, was, she's not normally accused of being part of the Westminster bubble. But of course yeah. she absolutely is. You know, she's yeah, yeah, that's it, isn't it? I mean, in, that, in that sort of sort of stylized drama um of liberals and conservatives that the bbc stages i mean she is quite i mean you know she has been read with great enthusiasm by some quite shady characters right i mean that's not uh i don't want to sort of um i don't want to libel anyone or or you know make accusations but i mean like she said some pretty off the fucking chain things yeah, uh, yeah. i mean i i i think like you know her her record particularly on on islam is is pretty clear and um you know it's just a matter of public record really you know she you know she is a hard right she is a hard right um intellectual like that i think that you know that objectively is the function that that she performs yeah. and and she's moved ever further to the right you know in the last in the last 10 years i mean it, and even 10 years ago you know she was she's very much like um towards yeah the the, the fringes of of conservatism like um but again it's interesting isn't it because she's a she's a hard right figure but primarily in as you say in the sort of social affairs unit social sphere rather than in the in the realm of political economy yeah, yeah she doesn't, she doesn't li i don't know really i don't really know what her position on political economy is it's like it's sort of beside the point of of her you know her persona as a public intellectual like what she thinks about taxation or whatever it happens to be yeah no that's right i mean it's interesting like you say that she she sort of comes to where she is via um, elements of social policy, like as you said before, like when we started talking like education, and I think like she had a background um, writing for New Society in I, I think in the late 1970s. So she sort of, you know, it's not like she's not engaged with like conservative, sorry, um, with with kind of social issues of this kind, but she she sort of she moves away from that, but but then loses any interest in it at all. But I think in so far as she seems to have had any sort of engagement in those kinds of issues, 
it's like because because of the nature of her kind of conservative perspective she sees everything basically as being based on culture so yeah. you know instead of thinking about you know um if you approach a social problem it's immediately you remove any kind of economic context from it and then start to think about um yeah questions of how culture drives it and you can see that you know in the in the sort of agenda that Ian Duncan Smith was developing at that um sense of social justice you know it's the, the classic sort of approach that they took and that was growing out of that yeah that yeah. sort of wing of conservatism with which you know I think Melanie Phillips was sort of loosely associated but it, it the whole the whole vision that that's developed by that wing of conservatism is I think is is based on a very conscious rejection of the idea that um that social structure can give rise to particular kind of problems you know it Thatcher used to get extraordinarily angry with with that whole that whole idea you know and they got very annoyed with sociology as a discipline precisely for this claim that you could understand social problems as being as being driven by particular social structures that then give rise to particular kind of yeah um particular kind of problems and there was just a, a very concerted push from the new right to say no that, that what drives these particular problems is a question of um of culture and that that drove a lot of the you know the hard right agenda around you know the very brutal um reforms of, towards universal credit and all of that you know so you know as much as what i'm saying is as much as many phillips appears like an outlier because of her you know extraordinary views on islam um she in some ways like that trajectory she goes on is very much you know part of the core of british conservatism and um yeah uh, it's probably you know it's, it's probably issues of you know terrorism and islam on which she she's the most the most sort of extreme i mean one of the things that always strikes me about her on this program is how how sort of um how's kind of middle class and like BBC and reasonable she sounds like she doesn't she doesn't get angry on on the program at all and she always has a very measured tone whereas her writing seems like very um yeah very very angry and very sort of yeah very kind of driven in a way that her yeah her person her, her, like as, as a as a guest sorry as a panelist yeah. she doesn't seem yeah. to sort of reflect that at all like she seems very comfortable and self-assured oh, doesn't she yeah she she seems very much at home within that within that Westminster milieu um, yeah. and I think she feels very comfortable with her self-image as a, as a sort of dissident or an outsider within it yeah um, and I think it's you know it's always useful to look at what is the sort of tolerated or permitted or even encouraged dissent in a given um, it, within a given consensus like what does that what does the what does that dissent tell us about the mainstream um and i think yeah she's very much part of that licensed opposition to um the liberal establishment i mean just sort of zooming back a bit to look at the moral maze as a sort of as a notion i think it is predicated on a misunderstanding in the sense that there is no separating out um morals from from politics and particularly you know the politics of distribution and production right the the idea that you could make you can make sense of ethics um without embedding it in a in a politics is 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 again it's sort of it is sort of in a quite a precise sense idiotic it's just like it's just misunderstanding 
what ethics um, is as a as an area of of thought, right? Um, and it, this is a you know it is a liberal this is a liberal delusion that there is a there is a distinction to be made between um, morality as a private matter and politics as a public matter. Mm. You know, private individuals are created through um, the impact of public policy on them and the and through the individual's response to public policy. Um, you know, we 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 are created by our circumstances as we as we try and create our circumstances. And and the idea you can sort of separate them out into this supposedly sort of um, separate realm of of moral debate just leads to a kind of you know weekly incoherence. Um, yeah. And that again, like the idea that you can have a a, a moral discussion that 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 literally excludes certainly a quarter of the, the existing population. Um, but 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 I would argue excludes like the possibility of human emancipation, <laughs> um, you know, in its structure. Um, it's a profoundly immoral project, Tom. I agree with that. Um, let's put the dude, get the moral maze on the moral maze. Yeah. The moral purpose for the moral maze. <laughs> Take a look at yourselves. Talking. Let's finally have that. Make them talk to, to each other forever. Um, but anyway, that's the moral maze. Yeah, so if, if people are actually li- interested in listening to the programme we've been discussing, you can find it on um, BBC Sounds, um, and I think, like, a whole back catalogue, so yeah, yeah. It, there's, there's a real, like, gem yeah. of an ar- archive for you to work your way through. I don't know, uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad we've done the Moral Maze, I'm not sure that um, I'm in any huge rush to revisit it, I've tended to avoid it. Well, the trouble with Tom, is that once you go in, it's very hard to get out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.